Well, I've got two questions for you today. Consider whether or not maybe you want to jot these down. I've got two questions for you. And the first question is this. What do you think of God? How would you answer that? What do you think of God? What are some of your conceptions about God? And the second question is fairly similar to that first, and that's this. What do you think God thinks of you? Right now, what do you think God thinks of you? What's God's attitude? What's God's disposition towards you? When God thinks of you, what does he think about? I'm going to pause a little bit right now. I want to give you an opportunity to answer those questions. Maybe make a mental note or, or perhaps even jot some things down. What do you think about God and what do you think God thinks of you? Well, I'll invite you to continue to think about that through these next 30 minutes and even for the remainder of this day. Those aren't bad questions for us to ponder for the rest of our lives. And now let's, let's turn to Scripture and let's see what the Word of God has to say about those two questions. Our sermon passage comes to us from the Old Testament book of Zephaniah. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find this passage on page 790. The book of Zephaniah is just three chapters long. The prophet Zephaniah brought a word of doom to the people of Israel. The Lord had given him a message of judgment and of coming destruction because of their rebellion, because of their refusal to walk in the ways of the Lord. He preached judgment against Israel and against Judah and against the neighboring countries. His message of judgment and punishment actually even extended to all of mankind. And then we come to chapter 3. And as we read these verses that we'll read in our passage for today, it can seem hard to believe that the same author, the same prophet, the same God would be delivering these words. Let's look at that passage now. Our, our passage today is Zephaniah 3, verses 14 through 17. Let's turn our attention to reading God's holy living and inerrant word. Let's give it the attention that it so richly deserves. The Lord gives this message through the prophet. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. 
On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is God's word for you today. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. Let's pray again and ask the Lord's help. Lord God, we thank you for this enduring word and we pray, Lord, that through it and through your spirit, you would reveal your truth to us again today, even through the mouth of this weak vessel. We pray, Lord, that you would remove anything that clouds our understanding or diverts our attention off of you, our only hope for salvation. Holy Spirit, examine our hearts and transform us, we pray. Amen. You take away all my fun. You take away all my fun. Those were the words of my son Noah that he would often say to me as he was growing up. And even in his own teenage way, maybe he thinks those words to this day, even though maybe he doesn't verbalize them exactly like that. Maybe you can relate to that as well. That can often be the attitude of a child towards a parent. Actually, kids, so you know, that can also be the attitude of a parent towards a child. Now, I remember one particular day when Noah was about five, when he said these exact words, you take away all my fun. And what you have to know is that when Noah was a little boy, four or five years old, he loved waterfalls. And if the weather was nice enough for him to be outside, he would likely be outside making waterfalls all throughout our yard running water off of a retaining wall in the front yard, and maybe at the very same time running water off of a, a, a sand pit in the backyard. This was when we lived in Herman, um, not in our present yard. Think how much fun it would have been to live on our property then, Noah. He would run water from a garden hose, And that small trickle as it would form, he would call a river. And then as it would collect into a puddle, he would call that his lake. And he would do this all day long. Well, one day when he was about four or five years old, I decided that I would help him have some fun. And so I bought a 50-gallon stock tank, and I buried it into the ground, and then I hooked up about 40 feet of inch and a quarter hose to that, and I connected that to a water pump that pumped water at the rate of about 4,000 gallons an hour. And I made a legitimate waterfall for him, a legitimate river in our yard there. Some of you who we've known for many years may even remember that along that side of our property there in Herman. And I fired that sucker up. And when I did, when Noah saw it, he went nuts. 
And he actually squealed with delight. Sorry, man. (laughs) One of the hazards of being the child of a preacher. He squealed with delight. And he would jump up and down. You know how kids do that when they get excited? Just jumping up and down, doing this little dance. This dance that children will so often do when they're especially happy. He never imagined that he could have a waterfall this cool in his own yard. And on that day, like so many other days, he played in that waterfall all day long. At least until the time came that it was time to go in for supper. Night had come and it was time to go into the house and of course, like every child, he immediately said, oh, yes, Father, but of course. No, he didn't. But he wanted to play. He insisted that he would stay outside and continue to play. And I literally had to pick him up, throw him over my shoulder, and carry him into the house while he would shout those words, You take away all my fun. I wonder, do you and I ever think of God in that same way? Are you ever tempted to think of God as some kind of cosmic killjoy? Sadly, many people, including many Christians see God as a kind of ogre in the sky, just waiting for you to make a mistake so he can zap you. Many people may feel that God might marginally accept or tolerate them, maybe temporarily, but but still there may be that underlying sense that he's always up there expecting the worst, just waiting to bring the hammer down, that hammer of judgment and punishment upon them the first time he gets a good excuse to do so. They think many people, even many Christians, can still be tempted to think that God delights in in exacting, exacting his punishment upon them. Do you ever find yourself slipping into thinking about God in that way? That he delights to punish you? Maybe you know someone who does. God continually pours out blessing upon blessing upon us. But yet is there some way that we still think that he's up there anxiously, eagerly looking for any and every opportunity? To take away our fun. Let's go back to that question that I asked you earlier. What do you think God thinks of you? Did any of you immediately say to yourself, He delights in me? He rejoices over me. He dances with joy because of me. Did any of you think that? 
And maybe he thought God's forgiven me. Maybe even he accepts me. Maybe even he loves me. But did you think to yourself that not only does he love you, but that he really, really, really loves you? And he loves you not in some impersonal, nearly emotionless way, but please get this, if you've been united by faith to Jesus Christ, his son, your father in heaven really, really, really loves you. If you're trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, the father doesn't just begrudgingly accept you. But if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, God is absolutely giddy with delight over you. He's like my waterfall-loving son. On that day when I built for him this backyard waterfall flowing at the rate of 4,000 gallons an hour, you make God squeal with delight and jump up and down with excitement and joy. That's what God's Word says. Look with me again at verse 17 of this passage. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. But are, but are you tempted to say, now wait a second, Daryl, gotcha. This passage says that God will rejoice over you, that he will quiet you with his love, that he will exult over you with singing. Are you tempted to say, but you see, these are all future tense words. These things might be true someday in the future, but not now. How might I reply to that? Well, let me ask you this. When was this passage written? 2,600 years ago, including 600 years before Calvary. We are in the future. That day has come. Now, how can I be sure of that? Well, it's because of verse 15. Look at it there. What does that say? The Lord has taken the judgments, has taken away the judgments against you. Some translations here say, the Lord has taken away your punishment. And so here's the question for the Christian. When was our punishment taken away? When, when were the Lord's judgments that were against us, when were they taken away from the Christian? At Calvary, on the cross. When the punishment that we deserve because of the sins that we commit, those were all placed upon Jesus. This is what we're told in Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own ways. And the Lord has placed upon him the iniquity of us all. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that has brought us peace. 
With his wounds we are healed. And Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. For the Christian, the punishment that we deserve because of our sin and disobedience, that has already been poured out upon Jesus Christ at the cross. The judgments that were once against us have been taken off of us and placed onto him. He took upon himself our sin and he transferred to us his perfect obedience, his righteousness, his right standing with God. And now, if you are placing your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you are completely accepted, completely welcomed and loved and delighted in by your Father in heaven because of the work of his Son, Jesus. Will you believe this? God has taken away his judgments against you. God has taken away the punishment that you and I deserve. And his wrath, God's word says, has been satisfied. There is no more need for any punishment to fall upon you again. He did that on the cross in Jesus. He has no reason to be angry with you. He has no reason to be hostile towards you. God's done this huge sin, huge thing for sinners like you and me. He's taken away our judgment. God has come to rescue you in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the message of Christmas. That's the message of Easter. That's the message of God's word. And for the Christian, he has taken away that punishment that we deserve. How many of your sins did Jesus die for? Some of them? Of course you know every one of them. But to what extent do you believe that God's anger over your sin, every bit of it, every bit of the punishment that it deserves, every bit of divine displeasure that your sins deserve, Do you really believe that that has been poured out, completely exhausted upon Jesus? God's word insists that this is true. Look at verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. The Hebrew word that's translated here as rejoice literally means 
to move rhythmically in circles. Is there any part of your heart, any part of your understanding that believes that God dances with delight because of you and over you? Earlier this morning, we We read that story of the prodigal son. Here a a young son, a foolish son, a sinful son comes to his senses and he returns to his father. What sight did that son see when he first saw his father upon his return? He saw his father running towards him. His father Was that father running towards him to deliver wrath? Was that father running towards him to deliver punishment, to deliver harsh words? No. But the father was running to his son to lavish him with love and with forgiveness. He was running towards his son so that his son would be restored to full fellowship, to be restored to a loving relationship with him. And that's what our Heavenly Father has done for us as well. In the story of the prodigal son, do we see the father shame his son or withhold love from him? No. But the father delights in his son's return. The father puts his robe on him, covering his son's poverty and filth and shame. The father doesn't shame his son, but instead he covers his shame. He doesn't punish his son, but he restores his son. He doesn't zap him, but instead he celebrates. The father puts his ring upon his son's finger, granting to him again status as a member of his household. And then he has the fatted calf killed. And what does he do next? What does scripture say happens next? There's a party with dancing. And now where do you think that father was when the dancing was going on? You just have to know that the father was out there leading the dance, covering his son with kisses, holding him tight, all the while celebrating and delighting in him, singing over him, singing with joy over his son's return. And in that same way, even now, even right now, this very moment, your heavenly Father is dancing with delight over you and because of you. If you have welcomed his gift of Jesus Christ, are you convinced of that? I, I, I wonder if some of you think that the Lord might rejoice. Scripture does say this. I remember these verses. Might rejoice when you come to faith. Maybe even when you specifically came to faith. 
but now? Is it possible that even now the Lord is still rejoicing over you? Even as you struggle? Even as you may struggle with doubt and with sin? Yes. Your Father in heaven dances over you. He rejoices over you with singing. Try to imagine Try to accept that. What would it feel like to really believe this? What would it be like to be in presence with your Father in heaven and see his face just lit up with joy, celebrating you, rejoicing over you, dancing with and over you? And with whom does the Lord do this with? With whom is the Lord pleased in this way? Every one of his sons and daughters. Not just some of them, not just some great saint or missionary or preacher, but over every one of his children. Yes, even you. Your Father in heaven dances and sings over you. Over the course of the next several weeks, we're going, we've been looking at prayers in Scripture. We're going to look at a particular prayer that's found in John 17. A prayer that Jesus prays. That he prays for the disciples that were with him in his day. And he also specifically prays for all those who will come to trust in him through their message. And part of his prayer, he prays that such people... All those who will come to place their faith in him through the message of the disciples. One of his prayers is that they would know that the Father sent him and loves them to the very same degree that he loves Jesus. Now I've shared these words with with Newport frequently over these years. But some of you are new. And we'll be looking at that in the weeks to come. Where Jesus Christ says it's his heart's desire, it's his prayer for you to know that the Father loves you just as to the same degree that he loves himself, that he loves Jesus. That's how much the Father delights in you because you have been united to Christ because the Christian's life is now hidden in Jesus, God's word says. What is true of Jesus is now true of you. The delight that the Father has for Jesus, he has that same delight for you because Jesus is our covenant representative and Jesus has won that delight. So now... Oh, let me just share this. I, I heard one preacher say that, that if, if God had a refrigerator, we would be like the finger paint, finger paint paintings that he would put on that refrigerator door. Again, God delights in the Christian. But here's a question. Do you sometimes beat yourself up over sin that remains in your life? You know, it's good for us to despise our sin. But here's something that's important. 
Make sure you never despise yourself because of your sin. You don't have to punish yourself because of the sins that you commit. Again, because the full punishment that that sin deserves has already been poured out upon Jesus. Now that's not a license for us to sin. God still hates that sin and we should too. We've been delivered from unrighteousness and made alive in Christ to live unto righteousness. And an evidence that you're a Christian is that you more and more will say no to sin and say yes to righteousness. Now this passage also tells us that the Lord will quiet you with his love. Do you know that quieting sense that the Lord provides? Again, do you know what it's like to know that God is singing over you, delighting over you? Meditate on passages like this and and other passages. Friends, if you are in Jesus, you are fully and completely accepted and loved and forgiven. And it's God's eager desire for you to accept those truths and to walk in those truths. Look to the cross. Remember the cross. Remember the significance of the cross that didn't just remove God's displeasure, but in that transaction that happened when our our sin was placed on Jesus and Jesus' righteousness and his obedience was transferred to us, was counted as ours, the delight of the Father also went with that upon us. The Lord your God is mighty to save, this passage says. He secured a mighty salvation for all those who trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sin. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope for salvation, then all of these promises are yours. Does that describe you? Does that include you? Can you say this morning, I know that Jesus died in my place. I know that I have been united to Jesus. I know that my punishment has been taken away because it has been placed upon Jesus. If you're trusting wholly and solely upon Jesus, all these great promises are true for you. But if you're not, then there's bad news here in this passage. If the judgment and punishment that our sins deserve hasn't been transferred onto Jesus, then those things are still resting upon us. And for a person who isn't trusting in the sacrificial substitutionary death of Jesus, well, then they will still face that wrath of God unless they repent and ask the Lord to unite them in faith to Christ. But to all who would throw themselves upon Jesus, the Lord will receive, and the Lord will save, and the Lord will respond like that father in the prodigal son. Please, all of you, delight yourselves in God. Delight yourself in the one 
who delights to delight in you. God has taken away your punishment. And because of that, he can now delight in you. And he makes it possible for you to delight in him. That's what the response is that this passage calls us to. Look at verses 14 and 15. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. What's our proper response of faith to these truths? We are to sing. We are to rejoice. We are to be glad. That's how the Lord calls us to respond to his saving work in our lives. And always the call to believe. The call to trust that these words are true. Dance, friends, with delight over this one who delights in you. Embrace the one who has embraced you. Pray with me, please. Lord God, these words sound almost too good to be true. Lord, may we, if we are Christians, may we never hear a passage like this, read a passage like this and say, ho-hum, oh yes, I know that. Stop us in our tracks over these nearly incomprehensible truths. Lord, give us a right view of our sin so that we will see how magnificent is the salvation that you have given us, the deliverance that you have achieved for us. And Lord, I pray that you dance with delight over every man and woman, boy and girl in this room because you have hidden their lives in Christ. I pray that all have accepted the message of the gospel. I pray that all have repented of their sin, their rebellion. For Lord, if any of us have not, well, maybe we need to read chapters 1 and 2 of Zephaniah to see the seriousness and to see how you will deal with people because of their sin and rebellion. Judgment and punishment still await any and every one of us unless that has been satisfied on the cross through a personal apprehension of Jesus Christ as Savior and as the atoning sacrifice for sin. Lord, convince us for any Christian who struggles to believe this Convince them that it is true. For any person who struggles and refuses to believe um, that the wages of sin is death and that God will punish sin, um, if they haven't placed faith in Christ, convince them um, that the horror of impending judgment is also true. And may that drive them, may that drive us all to repentance and to faith in Jesus Christ. I pray this in his glorious name. Amen.